Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like a chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, as we have now read your holy word, we pray that you would give us attentiveness, that, Lord, you would help us to block out the distractions that are threatening our ability to listen to what you want to say to us today. Lord, we pray that as we approach this first psalm, that, Lord, you would give us faith to receive what you have to say to us. Lord, we pray that you would instruct us, that you would guide us in your holy word, that you would continue to purify for yourself a people who are zealous for good works. Lord, bless now our time in your word, strengthen our faith, and continue conforming us into the image of Jesus, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, Happy New Year. 2021 is here, and we've got a brand new year. And of course, as we've been saying, we have a brand new series for us to go through in 2021. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to cover together the first book of the Psalms. If you don't know this, there are technically five books within the Psalms. um, And the first book is Psalm 1 until Psalm 41. And so we're going to spend most of 2021 just working our way through each of these psalms and covering, again, the first book of the psalms. Now, some of you will know this, but the book of Psalms is part of the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. When you get to the middle of the Old Testament, you have five books there that are categorized as the wisdom literature. So you've got the book of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Psalms then is technically categorized as wisdom literature. And what's great about that is that it means that through the Psalms, God is intending to help teach you and me how to live our lives rightly. And as we're going to see this morning, how to live our lives in such a way that we can be a blessed people. Now the Hebrew title to the book of Psalms, when it's translated, is translated this way, Songs of Praise. In fact, the book of Psalms has often been referred to as the hymn book of the Old Testament. More than any other book in the Bible, the Psalms have been used for the corporate and the private worship of Jews and Christians over the centuries. And for many Christians, the Psalms are one of their absolute favorite books of the Bible and certainly favorite books in the Old Testament. Uh, If you've ever seen those little pocket-sized Bibles that the Gideons organization prints. Uh, I've seen the little green ones. What's interesting about those is those are a New Testament and the Gideons hand those out as New Testaments. But what's interesting is it's a New Testament, but even the Gideons know if we're going to give a good Bible to Christians to be reading, we should include the Psalms and the Proverbs. That's how central those Old Testament books are to our life of worship. 
One of the appeals in the book of Psalms, and we're going to see this, is that the Psalms explore the inner dynamics of our relationship with God more perhaps than any other book in the Bible. Tremper Longman, the distinguished Old Testament scholar from our very own Westmont College, wrote this in his introduction to reading the Psalms, and I quote, The Psalms appeal to the whole person. They demand a total response. The Psalms inform our intellect, arouse our emotions, direct our wills, and stimulate our imaginations. When we read the Psalms with faith, we come away changed and not simply informed, end quote. And that's exactly what our hope is as a church, is that as we journey together through these 41 Psalms in 2021, that we would walk away changed, not just simply informed, not just filled with some more facts about the Bible, but that as we read these Psalms with faith, that God would actually change us. Well, this brings us now to Psalm 1. Let's see what the psalmist has to say to us this morning. Okay, I couldn't resist. That was a Joe Biden joke. It's not the psalmist, it's the psalmist. As we enter the Psalter, which is what you technically call the book of Psalms, two paths are presented to us. The way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. And the question before every single reader who enters the Psalter through the gateway of chapter 1 is this question. Which one of these two people am I? Am I among the wicked or am I among the righteous? Psalm 1 was intentionally placed at the beginning of the Psalter for this very reason. In many ways, it's the interpretive grid for the entire book. Hebrew wisdom literature in general viewed life this way. That there are essentially just two paths in life. There's not a million different paths. There are two basic paths in life. The path of wisdom and the path of folly. Or put differently, the path of righteousness and the path of wickedness. We see this picked up by the greatest Jewish rabbi or teacher of all time, Jesus of Nazareth. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus teaches that there is a wide road that leads to destruction and that there is a narrow road that leads to life. There were two paths, according to Jesus, and every single person is on one of them. So Psalm 1, again, is going to present these two, ra- these two paths or these two roads, these two lives that you can choose, the path of righteousness or a path of wickedness. But the psalm begins with the righteous person. And this righteous person is described in verses 1 through 3. The first thing that we learn about the righteous person is right there in the first word. And it's this, that the righteous person, according to the Psalter, is supremely happy. That word blessed that you see in verse 1 is a word that describes a person who is abounding in blessings. It's a life that is just overflowing in blessings. It's a life that you could sort of say is kind of like firing on all eight cylinders. Everything that you look at in their life is in its truest sense actually flourishing and is blessed. This is what the righteous person is described like in the Old Testament. 
They're supremely happy. They're blessed. Well, what is the source of their happiness? Where does this blessedness come from? The answer in Psalm 1 is that the source of the happiness comes from a particular way of life. In that way, living a happy life is a lot like living a healthy life. There are things that you do to be healthy, and there are things that you don't do if you want to be healthy. Right? If you listen to the experts, the conventional wisdom is that you need to have a balanced diet. You should exercise regularly. You should get good sleep. And if you do those sorts of things, you will be a physically healthy person. But we also know that there are certain things that you shouldn't do if you want to be a physically healthy person. Right? You need to avoid, let's say, junk food and a bad diet. You should probably avoid things like smoking or drinking heavy or doing drugs. And so to be a healthy person, there are certainly things that you do and there are also things that you don't do. Well, what we see here in Psalm chapter one is that the same applies to the person who desires to be blessed in the spiritual sense. The psalmist begins in verse one with the things that the blessed person does not do. He says, the blessed person doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. Let me put this differently. The righteous person avoids the wicked. The righteous person avoids the wicked. Here's how it's written in verse 1. Blessed is the man or the person who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So here is the source of the blessed life stated negatively. This person avoids the wicked. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, in warning his own church from Psalm chapter 1, said this of the wicked. He said, beware of their opinions, their lifestyle, and keeping their company. That was the way that he summarized these three instructions in verse 1. Beware of their opinions their lifestyle, and keeping their company. Now, one of the great things about wisdom literature is that oftentimes it is just very, very simple. Um, There are parts of the Bible that can be very, very challenging to understand. But one of the benefits of the wisdom literature, and this is why people love the Psalms and love the Proverbs, is you can kind of just pick it up and read it and you just get it. And the psalmist is not trying to be difficult here. He's saying, blessed is the person who avoids the wicked, who stays away from bad company. And friend, the instruction is if if you want to be a blessed person, then do not hang out with the wrong crowd. It's been said, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. And it's true. You are who you associate with. 1 Corinthians 15.33 puts it this way. Do not be deceived Bad company ruins good morals. Now, I remember being a teenager and sitting in churches and listening to preachers talk about this. If you hang out with the wrong crowd, you're going to get in trouble. You're going to veer away from the Lord. And I remember thinking, whatever, right? We, we all think, well, not me. I'm strong enough. I know what I'll do. I'll bring all my ungodly friends to Jesus, right? That's, that's how we think it's going to work. That didn't work out super well for me. Hanging out with the wrong crowd. Sure, you start off ambitious. You start off with the best of intentions and you're being a light and you're looking different. But over time, through osmosis, 
you begin to compromise. You begin to uh, change your standards. Your friends are saying, hey, lighten up. This isn't that big of a deal. Hey, this is fun. Come do these things. And all of a sudden, you begin to change your standards, and it begins to change your worldview and your opinions and your values and your beliefs. So we need to ask ourselves this morning this very simple, straightforward question. Who am I surrounding myself with? Who are the voices that I'm allowing to speak into my life? Now, we have different voices speaking into our lives from a a lot of different places. The, The most obvious application would just be, who are those that are in your inner circle? Who are the people that you are constantly doing life together with? And I'm going to tell you, if these are not godly people who are pursuing Jesus and who are loving God and who are committed to the church, do not be surprised when you find it harder and harder yourself to pursue Jesus and to love the Lord and to love the local church. But I would ask you as well, what about the shows that you watch? What about the movies that you watch? These are ways that we begin to Um, receive and internalize the opinions of the world. These are the ways that we're letting other voices speak into our lives through media. And a lot of times we just just act like that stuff's not going to impact us. Well, that's just on TV. That's not going to shape me, really. These voices that you are giving prominence in your life are going to shape you for better or for worse. So think about that. What kinds of shows and movies do you watch regularly? What about your music choices? So many people and so many Christians talk about these sorts of things as if they're just um, uh, sort of irrelevant, as if these things don't have that much power. Are you kidding me? The anthems that we let play in our minds, that we rehearse, that we sing, those things begin to form and shape our worldview and our ideas and our value systems and the things that we believe. What about the social media accounts that you follow? If you're anything like me, you follow a whole range of different types of social media accounts for different reasons. But what are the things that those particular accounts are promoting? What are the ideas? What are the underlying value systems and assumptions that these bloggers and these people that you're following in social media are advocating for? Friend, those are voices that you're letting speak into your life. And the psalmist is saying so clearly to us today, blessed is the person who does not receive their counsel from the ungodly. We've got to be careful. There are so many voices, so many ways that we allow different voices to speak into our lives. So here's what the blessed person doesn't do. But what does he or she do? What is the positive side of it? Well, we see it right here in verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So what the blessed person, what the righteous person doesn't do is The righteous person, they they avoid the wicked, and now we see that they instead abide in God's word. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. So here is the source of the blessed life now stated positively. He delights in the law of the Lord. Now, the word law here means God's instruction as it's revealed to us through 
the whole scripture, all of God's word. That's what God's law is referring to here. It's, it's God's instruction. And I would ask you this morning, friend, as we start a brand new year, would you describe yourself as a person who delights in the word of God? Now notice what I'm not asking you. I'm not asking you, are you a person who reads the word of God? I'm not even asking you, are you a person who attempts to obey the word of God in your life? What's so illuminating about the vision of the righteous life from the psalmist here is that the psalmist is actually getting underneath that to a deeper level of who we are. He's asking about the things that delight us, the things that please us, the things that this, this Hebrew word for delight refers also to the things that we care deeply about, that this person gives great carefulness to the word of God. And so the question is, are you a person who delights in the word of God? That it's pleasing to you. That you hunger for it. That you thirst for the word of God. Speaking of God's commands, the psalmist writes this in chapter 19, verse 10. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than, the honey, than honey and drippings, of the honeycomb. He's saying, I love God's commands. I love God's law. It's sweeter to me than honey. It's more precious to me than gold. Now, a great question we could ask would be, well, how, how can I de develop a desire for the word of God? And I need to say this, the, the starting point for this is that first, in order for you to love the word of God, you have to love the God of the word. And this is the reason why. The commands of God flow out of the character of God. Okay, God's law, God's commands are not just kind of an arbitrary list of rules that God thought, you know, let me just create, create a bunch of rules so that I can just test people and see if they're really obedient or not. God's law, God's commands actually flow out of God's character. Okay, the reason why God tells us not to lie and God tells us to be an honest people is because God is truthful. God does not lie. God is honest and therefore this command flows out of his character. The reason why God tells us to be faithful to our spouses, faithful to those commitments in our marriage is because God himself is faithful. God never breaks his promises. If you belong to the Lord, he is committed to you. He will never leave you or forsake you. That's why God hates divorce. That's why God commands these things at its deepest level. Why God commands these things to be wrong. The law of God flows out of the character of God. And so what that means is that as we begin to love God, of course we're going to start loving the commands of God. According to Romans 8, 7, we cannot love the law unless we first love God. Here's Romans 8, 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It cannot. First, we need to love God. Then we can love his commands. This unlocks a major key for us in understanding what is really behind this concept of the righteous person. This is not just some superficial kind of external righteousness where the psalmist is saying essentially like, hey, if you just don't hang out with bad people and 
Read your Bible for 20 minutes every day. You can check the righteous box. That's not what he's talking about here. This is getting deeper than that. The righteous person is a person who, again, their heart has been reoriented to love the law because it's been reoriented to love the Lord. So this reminds us that in order to be truly righteous, we need to experience God's grace. That's the baseline starting point. Apart from God's grace, we might study his word. We might even accept some of it. We might even put some of these laws into practice and do them. But apart from God's grace, we will never delight in them. That is a work of God. The second thing that we need to know in order to delight in God's law is that the law of the Lord guides us and leads us into the good life. The Hebrews believed this with all their heart about God's word. That God's word was the tool, the resource that God had given us to show us what the blessed life is like, what the good life is actually like. In Psalm 19.7, we read, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Famously, in Psalm 119.105, we read, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's word illuminates the way that we should go so that we're not stumbling into peril and destruction. The oldest lie of the devil that many people still fall for today, it happened in the Garden of Eden, is the lie that suggests that God is holding out on you. That what God is actually doing is God is trying to eliminate your fun. God's trying to take away your happiness. That God's withholding something good from you. That's what Satan told Eve. And that's where she was deceived. She began to question, well, maybe God isn't as good. Maybe God isn't that concerned with my happiness. Maybe God is withholding potential joy from me. I need to disobey God. And that's the same lie that people fall into today. And so family, we cannot be reminded enough that the commandments of the Lord are there to lead you into blessing and flourishing. As we say yes to what God tells us to say yes to, we are saying yes to our own eternal happiness. Now notice, this blessed person, this righteous person, is not just the person who delights in the word of God. They delight in the word of God by meditating on the word of God. He says they meditate on God's word day and night. Day and night. God's word is the voice that they're allowing to form and shape their mind and their heart. Now notice this about meditation here. Sometimes when we think of meditation, we kind of think of Eastern concepts of meditation. Perhaps the idea of trying to get your mind to a state of being totally clear, being free of any thought, really, being absent-minded almost. That, that is not what Christian meditation is. Christians have long practiced and valued meditation, but notice here from Psalm 1, Christian meditation is concentrated focus on the word of God. So it's not absent-mindedness. Meditation for Christians is concentrated focus on the word of God. He says that this person meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. Now this word meditate is very interesting. We tend to think of meditation as only what's happening internally. It's our internal thoughts. 
The word, though, literally means to mutter something or to speak in some context or to just utter a sound, to utter a sound. The idea here is that the word of God is on our minds and on our lips all day long. That the righteous person is the person who is rehearsing the scriptures all throughout the day. It's the the thing that you begin speaking to yourself about in the morning. And you carry that conversation with you throughout the day. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, we see this for the Hebrew people. Deuteronomy 6, 4, God says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Look at the way that God's people historically have handled the word of God. That it would be the language on their lips throughout the day. That it would be the meditation of their heart. That they would constantly put God's word in front of their minds and their hearts. This is how we internalize things. Have you ever been so deep in thought about something that you actually caught yourself talking to yourself? Right? Sometimes you're driving in your car and you're thinking about an important meeting that you're going to have or you think about a conversation that you just had that was really important and all of a sudden you're rehearsing it and all of a sudden you're saying the things that you wish that you would have said in the meeting or you're saying the things that you're prepared to say in the meeting ahead of you and you're actually kind of just muttering the conversation to yourself. You're talking to yourself. That's how we internalize information through having a conversation, a dialogue with ourselves in our minds, or again, sometimes even with our lips. And certainly we internalize things through speaking with somebody else. And so the psalmist is saying to us this morning that the blessed person is a creature of the word. Rather than being influenced by the opinions of the world, they are informed and influenced by the word. I don't know where you're at this morning, in your commitment to reading the Bible. But I would just tell you that as you start a brand new year, if you want to be a blessed person, commit yourself to reading God's word. We have a reading plan, as was announced. It is very doable. It's a chapter a day, five days a week. That gives you two makeup days, okay? If you need some help, five days a week, one chapter a day, and you will have read the entire New Testament. What a wonderful plan for this year. What a wonderful commitment. Well, what's the result of the person who lives this way? In verse 3, we see it's that in all that this person does, they prosper. Isn't that what you want out of your life? I mean, think about that. Don't you want to be happy and prosperous? It seems like any person you talk to would say that those are their goals. In Joshua 1.8, we read, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have good success. One of the great examples in the Old Testament of this blessed person who prospers is Joseph. Think of young Joseph. After he was sold into slavery by his brothers, awesome family, right? Um, 
He goes down to Egypt and he gets taken in as a slave into Potiphar's house. Potiphar is a very powerful man in Egypt. And Joseph, this young man who is righteous and who loves the Lord, is serving in Potiphar's house. And before long, everything that he's doing is just flourishing. It's being blessed. So Potiphar actually raises him up to manage his entire estate, to run his company, to do everything. He was in charge of all that was Potiphar's. It was like everything that this young man touched turned to gold. Fast forward and Joseph gets thrown into a prison after being falsely accused of rape. Same thing happens in this prison. Everything he touches is flourishing, it's prospering, it's being blessed. And so all of a sudden, even though he himself is a prisoner, they put him in charge of all the other prisoners and he's running the prison. So now he's got that experience. Fast forward again. And after interpreting the dream of Pharaoh himself, Joseph is raised up to be the prime minister of Egypt, the second most powerful man in the world. And whereas every other nation in the area experienced terrible famine under Joseph's watch and rule, Egypt was flourishing during those years. It's a picture of this person, this life that flourishes, this life that is ordered rightly before God. And as a person is living that way, according to the scriptures, they are blessed. He says they are like a tree planted by streams of water. What a beautiful image, bearing fruit. So that's the portrait of the righteous person. Next is the portrait of the wicked person, which will be much more quick in verses four and five. Really, there's two things to point out. Number one, right there in verse four, is that the wicked person is unstable, right? It says in verse four, the wicked are not so. What he means is that everything he just said about the righteous, that they're like this tree, flourishing, bearing fruit, stable, secure, strong, all of that that was just said about the righteous person, that's not true of the wicked. That's his point. The wicked are not so. The wicked bear none of those qualities. They're unstable. He says the wind drives them away. The wicked are portrayed here as a lightweight, rather than being led by the reliable word of God and having every step securely taken in their lives, they're tossed like a toy boat that's thrown into a rough sea. Not only is the wicked person unstable, but second, we see the wicked person is unfruitful. He says that the wicked person is like chaff. Now, chaff is not the grain. Okay, chaff is not what you harvest. We just studied the book of Ruth together and we talked about this a little bit, but when you would harvest grain, let's say wheat, for example, you would go gather all the wheat and you'd bring it to a place called a threshing floor. And at the threshing floor, they'd throw all the grain down on the floor and then they'd let heavy animals walk all over the grain and it would crunch it. And what it would do is it would cause the chaff and the shells to come off the outside of the grain. So it'd break apart. And after they had the animals, Uh, walking all over the grain, they'd get the animals out of there and then they'd grab a winnowing fork, which just think of a pitchfork and they'd go and they'd just toss all the debris up into the air. And what would happen is the light breeze would take the chaff and just blow it away. And the heavier grain would fall back to the floor of the threshing floor. And eventually, after they'd done that enough, they'd sweep up the grain, they'd collect it and that was their fruitful harvest. The wicked are like the chaff, the psalmist says unfruitful in every way. The chaff just gets blown away. It's useless. 
It's the grain that is the harvest. It's the grain that is the fruit. Whereas the righteous produce beautiful fruit, the wicked are unfruitful and their works will be brought to nothing. What's the result of the life of wickedness? We see it in verses 5 and 6 here. He says in verse 5, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Now this could be a reference to either temporal consequences or eternal consequences. If it's temporal, the idea here is simply that the wicked are not going to participate in matters of justice and ruling in the community. Right? Generally speaking, we don't elevate people to important roles in the community if we know that they're just terrible, evil, wicked people. And so he says that the wicked will have no place in the congregation of the righteous. But if this is referring to eternal consequences, we know that the psalmist here is talking about the final judgment. And whether that's eternal consequences in verse 5 or not, we know in verse 6 it certainly is. In verse 6, we finally see a summarizing contrast between the two people, the righteous and the wicked. The psalmist says in conclusion, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. That word is awesome because it means that the Lord is paying careful attention to the righteous. As we live our lives, if you're a follower of Jesus, there are many challenges, of course, that are presented to us, a lot of difficult seasons. There's many moments in our lives as Christians where we go, I don't exactly know what's going on. I don't know how this is going to work out for good. But we can take heart that the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Some translations actually just make that the Lord protects the way of the righteous. It's again suggesting God's providential care as a father for his children. And so the righteous can take comfort that no matter where we go in our life, no matter what circumstances befall us, if you are a righteous person through faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord knows, the Lord is watching, the Lord is caring for you. Job 23.10 says, But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. In the midst of his suffering, Job was able to say, God knows. He's watching me. He'll take care of me. At the end of my days, I'll come out of this furnace like gold. But it's not that way for the wicked. The psalmist, again, he's painted this incredible contrast here. And he concludes now with this idea the way of the wicked shall perish. At times, if we're honest with ourselves, we can look at people who don't love Jesus, sometimes even people who are downright awful, they're evil people, and it looks like everything is just flourishing in their life. And we can find ourselves as followers of Jesus actually despairing at times and going, Lord, what is up? How could this possibly be? This is a contradiction to what your word says. Well, what's great is the wisdom of the Psalter keeps us from despair by reminding us that the path that they are on will ultimately be a path that leads to ruin. And so I ask you this morning in closing, which path are you on? It's the start of a brand new year. It's a great text for all of us to take inventory. What path are you on in your life?
Are you a person who is on the path of the righteous? The blessed path. The person who is allowing the word of God to be the delight of your heart. The person who is saying, I don't want the wisdom of the world. I don't want to follow the ways of wickedness. I love God. And therefore, I love and trust the word of God. This is the delight of my heart. If you're on that path, stay planted. Don't turn to the right. Don't turn to the left. Stay planted and watch as your roots get deeper and as your fruit gets even more abundant. Or this morning, would you have to conclude that you're on the path that leads to ruin? That you don't treasure the Lord, that you don't treasure his word, that you would rather be in the company of the ungodly, that you actually enjoy that. If that's where you're at, friend, I just want to warn you this morning from the word of God that the way of the wicked will perish. And the best resolution you could make in this new year would be to repent of that folly, of that foolishness, come to your senses this morning and say, I want to love the Lord and follow him. And you can do that today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the wisdom that is available to us in your word. Father, we are so thankful for this very clear picture that we get this morning of two paths and two destinies. And Lord, I pray this morning that you would continue to stir up our hearts to be a people that desire to follow you, to follow your word, and to delight in you. Lord, I pray for any among us who have never put their faith and trust in you, the one who created them, the one who loves them, and the one who 2,000 years ago came to this earth to save them from their sins and rescue them. I pray that right now at the beginning of 2021, you would give them faith to turn to you with all of their heart. God, we love you. We thank you for your amazing love for us. We commit ourselves to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.